Captain Torrance, Flight Commander. How can I help you? Fugitive extradition. Oh, is he dangerous? What did he do? Homicide 15 years ago. I don't want to scare the rest of the passengers. I'm afraid you're stuck with us, Captain. Get him on board. Let's have a good flight. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Trailblazer 119, we are dark. Anyone near guard, damn it. We're gonna hit. We're gonna hit. change how everything looks. It's hard to find our house. Ours is the dark house with no lights. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. Sammy's on my team, takes after me. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host Rob Daniel and as always I am so happy today I'm joined by my co-host with the most, Mr Rob Wallace. Oh, that's very kind and as always it's a real delight to be here. And we're in the same space, so that's cool. Uh, if you hear a bit of a rumbling in the background, that's not the coming apocalypse. Um, no, the, the apocalypse is coming silently. <laughs> it is, it is coming silently. It is the silent killer. <laughs> It's just raining outside, and that's just the rain that's hammering off the roof, so we hope that it's quite soothing. I'll try and noise reduce it. No, it's really nice when you like when I lie in here, like on the couch with a blanket. Like, that's really that's really nice. I hope you're having the same experience. Let's see how much that picks up. The feedback we get is Can you just see when it's that rain again? Because that was really soothing and relaxing and so unlike your normal episodes. <laughs> To which our answer would be, of course. Yes, we will do the ASMR. Is that the right way around? Yes. I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Although it's like, great, you've just turned this into a horror podcast, guys. Well, I mean, lots of people seem to find it quite relaxing, but I always think that's creepy, right? That's creepy as fuck. Speaking of creepy, uh, so a peek behind the curtain, the previous episode where we talked about Megan and Babylon and Skinnamarink, and Ennis Men, what a bumper episode that was, was recorded early in the morning after some technical issues where I just couldn't get my microphone to work on Discord. I don't know if anyone out there uses Discord regularly, but Jesus Christ, is it a temperamental platform to record on? And because of that, missed a couple of things out. Oh my God. One of the things that really annoyed me is that I actually forgot to say what Megan stands for. Oh, they come for the professionalism. So it, of course, stands for Model 3 Generative Android. I've been waiting two weeks to say that. <laughs> and the other thing that really, really annoyed me was that I was talking about all the classic evil doll movies. Totally forgot to say Child's Play, which is like uh, the one that it most resembles. And that stung as well, because I do like the Child's Play movies. And it's like, oh, no, I forgot to say Chucky. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Let's go back and do it all again. And the other thing, so talking about Akela Cooper, yeah, just really should have looked her up because she wrote Malignant, which was one of my favourite films of the previous year. And what was the, your Mad as Arseholes? It was my Mad as Arseholes, that's right. That's very, very well remembered. And it's also one of those where it then explains even more why she reportedly wasn't particularly happy that Megan was getting a PG-13, because Malignant is a hard R. And I think it's an 18 in this country as well. So anyway, yeah, so she did Malignant. She's done Megan. 
two really good horror films. So, yeah, can't wait to see what she does next. But yes, so what are we talking about on this episode, Rob? Unless there's anything from the previous episode you wanted to add in because you've got to talk about it, or was it just me that just had a complete brain fart? Oh, no, you know, I get it all, get it all down the first time. No, that's fine. <laughs> you've got nothing to say. No, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Never have anything to say and you'll never... <laughs> It's at this point that Rob says, we are recording this in my flat. <laughs> what a gracious guess you are. Well, in all fairness, you did come here in the rain, so... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, anyway, what are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about uh, The Fable Ones. Yep. The new uh, Steven Spielberg film, uh, which is Oscar-nominated. And uh, we're also going to be talking about the other Oscar nominees that yes. were announced yesterday, as of recording. Well, before we get into that, could you briefly tell us what you thought of the movie Plane? <laughs> Because <laughs> you saw Plane, and I'm going to do that thing I always do. I'm going to ask you to say something, and then I'm going to say something immediately. So I saw the trailer for Plane before Megan. Had no idea that there was a film called Plane, <laughs> and it stars Gerard Butler. And kind of watching this thing, and it's like, okay, this actually, I don't know, seems all right. I've got no idea what this film is, though. And then at the end, it just says, Plane. And the entire audience went, <laughs> they made a film called Plane. Did they run out of time or something? Well, basically, it's about this this plane that is... Uh, everybody knows how this joke is going to end, so I'm just going <laughs> to... I think there's a lot of people out there saying, I don't know how it's going to end. And it's this to... plane, and uh, it's, it's a flight on New Year's Eve, and the plane's pilot is Gerard Butler, and the plane goes down, and he must defend the plane from angry mercenaries. I think the film is called Jared Butler is a Pilot. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, actually, in terms of the, yeah, let's just call it plain, it also seems I found out today listening to the film cast what the Gerard Butler's character's called. Brody Torrance. Yep. So clearly the scriptwriter just watched Jaws and The Shining and said, Brody Torrance, that'll do, yeah, fine. <laughs> no, 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 no. Brody spelled B-R-O-D-I-E, completely different. Yes, that's right, yes. Brody Torrance. I mean, that is obviously, he just went Jaws, The Shining, bye. <laughs> There's not really any Jaws or The Shining in it. No, no, no. But, but it, yeah, just, I guess, yeah. I'm sure that it's just the screenwriter indulging themselves and also thinking, actually, that sounds pretty good. Fine. That's a good morning's work. So anyway, I've talked way too much without having seen the film, Plane. So what is Plane like? It's very nuts and bolts, even by B-movie standards, but it's refreshingly no frills. Essentially, you know, got Jared Butler as the pilot and um, Mike Coulter, who was um, I, um, Luke, Cage. Luke Cage. I was about to say Iron Fist. No, no, it's not his name. was not Iron Fist. Uh, basically, is the um, this prisoner who happens to be transport, being transported at the same time, and they team up. So is it a commercial air? It's a, it's, it's, it's a budget airliner that goes down in right, a storm so. on New Year's Eve. Oh, okay, right. And where does it go down? Uh, on an island in the Philippines that happens to be in like the, the, the control of insurgents. Right, okay. And they have to battle their way through. And they have to... to battle their way through and protect the slim number of passengers. Right, okay. So it's Turbulence meets The Most Dangerous Game meets probably every other action film ever made? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it very much, it kind of falls into the Die Hard meets X, and I guess Die Hard meets Lost, if Lost had no mysteries and no twists, and they just kind of went, oh, they're on an island, they've got to kill some people. So it's Die Hard meets The Most Dangerous Game. Yes, that's, that's fair. Because yeah. <laughs> that's the thing, is that it's called Plane, 
But a lot of the trailer is not set on a plane. Oh, most fact, of it's plane... not set on a plane. Yeah, it's weird, that. Did that not seem weird when you were watching it, that it's called Plane? I mean, the plane is kind of still the main set piece in it, but yeah, a lot of right. it is... But it's not called Island? No. <laughs> but should it be called Island? No. I mean, <laughs> Plane is still the right title for it. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a big enough part of the, of the narrative. And yeah, Gerard Butler is like a endearingly kind of down-to-earth in it, and Mike Coulter is very kind of cool and laconic and apparently didn't kill his wife though we're kind of obliged to take his word for that because the film goes well it's not a fucking murder mystery we can't we don't have time for a legal thriller there are there are insurgents to kill so so it's like the fugitive taken on good faith yeah die hard meets the most dangerous game meets lost Mm. i mean wow okay and like um it's got a kind of a secondary narrative involving um two of the sort of company support staff trying to get them home they're played by paul ben victor and tony goldwyn which again i'm just going to say now neither of them are evil in it (laughs) it's just like no they're just there and they're like kind of just doing their job and there's no real so what is it about the film that's Good. Is the action good? Because it all sounds a bit ordinary right now, to be honest. It's kind of mostly shot on uh, shaky cam by a director called Jean-François Richet, who did Marine, who did the... Um, oh, the right. the, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Like he's I mean, like, that was a long time ago, I suppose, but... Heavens. Like, he's a really kind of... Um, I think he also did a film called Emperor Paris, both of which have, uh, didn't have things, Vincent Cassell in them. And he's, yeah, kind of, like, always been very much a, a French, you know, action, mid-range action director who's... Got, had a lot of plaudits and he's yeah. probably not going to get them for this but it's, it's there's one scene in it which is a one take kind of real time fight scene which is really well done actually like quite brutal and you get a feel I get, actually get a feel of these two you know people in a fight to the death the rest of the film isn't really like that but it's fun yeah like I, I had a good time watching it yeah and did the audience have a good time as well? Yeah, there's there was generally a good vibe. I mean, in all fairness, it was at the Cineworld Leicester Square in the super screen and they were serving alcohol. So <laughs> it's definitely a popcorn movie. Okay. Well, big question. Will there be Plane 2 Planer? I don't know how there can be. Not because it's not, not because there's got, there's anything hugely dramatic that happens in the narrative that would, pre- that would preclude it. It's just going to be difficult to imagine how they'd continue it. Because at least when, you know, in the sequel to Die Hard, he's not back in Nakatomi Plaza. Like, if the same thing happens to a guy who just happens to be on board a plane... I mean, he's a pilot, but if another thing happens to a, with him on board a plane, it's going to be like... What are the odds? What are the odds? It's like... And also, like, it's going to be quite difficult to orchestrate a way for him and Mike Coulter's character. Because presumably they'd want to bring back Mike Coulter's character. Yeah, but I haven't seen the film, but you could imagine that it's like... They're brought together because... oh. I've got it. I've got it. There is a book written about their experiences. They had to obviously be interviewed for it. They're on the press tour. They're in. So they're flying around the country. So they're like on a press plane with. Yeah, they're on a press plane, and so he's not. The, so he's not the pilot. I mean, that'd be. Yeah, and someone from the first movie who's got a grudge. Uh, I don't think there is anybody from the first movie. I think they kill everyone. <laughs> the brother of the person from the first movie. No, I think he's probably dead too. <laughs> the older school friend of the person who moved off the island before to Canada or something. It, it very much operates on them. They're mercenaries, so you don't need to feel bad. Like, no, sorry, they're not. Sorry, they're not mercenaries. They're insurgents. There are mercenaries in the film, but they're the good guys. That's because it's a Gerard Butler film, and his films are horribly right wing. Olympus Has Fallen is. Olympus Has Fallen is like a MAGA cap made a movie. It's so rubbish and 
terribly right wing and just so xenophobic. But yeah, but the reason I asked about a sequel is because we know that Gerard Butler, he will not let a hit film not have a sequel. So there was that one, oh, what was it called? Honor Amongst Thieves? No, what was the... Oh, uh, Den of Thieves. Den of Thieves, yeah. That had a sequel, didn't that- it? It's not. I don't think the sequel's out yet. I think it's been made. I mean, the, it was, the first one was rubbish. It made a bunch of money. It made loads of money. And planes open really strong as well. And then you've got uh, Olympus Has Fallen. There were two... London Has Fallen and Angel Has Fallen. Yeah. Yes. That's right, yeah. So he'll always... If a film hits, he'll say, yeah, okay, right, let's have a sequel. I think of those, I've only seen Angel Has Fallen. I've seen Olympus Has Fallen. I watched the first... I think I watched the first half hour Listen, of, it... of Angel Has Fallen. No, sorry. Of London has fallen with you. I think we watched the first yeah. half hour on Netflix once, and it was it's possible rubbish. Like really, uh, Olympus really has fallen. That's Channing Tatum, Jamie Fox, right? Yeah, indeed. That's the one that came out like the week before White House Down. It's like, oh, look at that same movie's happened again. It's normally set on Mars. <laughs> like <laughs> when what? that happens, how come White House Down didn't get a sequel? Because that was markedly better. I think it's because it didn't do very well, did it? And it was versus clearly budget. operating on a larger budget, yeah. Yeah, versus budget, Olympus Has Fallen was by far the more successful movie. So anyway, um, yeah, Plane, I will watch Plane when it comes to a streaming service. I think I think it's one of those where it's like, it's going to get a Domino's on my lap and watch Plane and go, yep, there we go. That was as... That's the Plane. <laughs> That's the Plane. <laughs> it was plain to see that that was a mid-range action film that was, yeah, fine. Anyway, so is Plane nominated for any Oscars? Uh, yes, best Plane. <laughs> I think it's up for best title. <laughs> best title of the year goes to Plane. It's either that or Triangle of Sadness. Yeah, yes, indeed. The, the only time those two films will be ever be mentioned in the same sentence. Yeah, yeah. It's great you can just mention two completely disparate films in the same sentence, and chance so you're the first person to do that. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and... David Lynch is the alphabet. Yes, you see? It, it's a it's a game that's fun for us, and for the people who are listening also. <laughs> so, Why don't you try it at home? It's <laughs> so much fun right now. So yes, we are recording this Wednesday the 25th of January, and which means that yesterday the Oscar nominations were announced. And, well, there's only one really big surprise in there, isn't there? And what's that? Uh, Andre Riesborough getting a Best Actress nom for To Leslie, a film that most people have just never heard of, but apparently had a lot of a uh, push from her from the agency. I think it's, it's, I don't know if it's CCA, but one of the major talent agencies that she's a um, client of. And also, also apparently a lot of just general industry goodwill, given the fact that she's a really well-regarded actress. Yeah. And the fact that the, um, she seems to have pushed out a couple of other presumptive nominees, you know, Daniel Deadweiler for Till or Viola Davis for The Woman King. Yeah. Uh, and also the fact that, you know, Anna Diarmas got nominated for Blonde, a film that is, well, a film that I, th- I don't, I think hers was the only Oscar nom, although it has multiple Razzie nominations. And I'm not one who, I don't particularly like the Razzies, but it's one where it's like, yeah, if you're going to nominate anything, I can't really argue with that. Yeah, I was kind of referring to the fact that Daniel Deadweiler has been so praised for her performance in Till as the mother of the murdered black boy who was lynched based on a true story. Apparently she's absolutely phenomenal. Oh, she is. I, I watched a screener of it. She yeah. Is, yeah. I mean, that just seems so weird. Such a weird omission. Because it's like, well, I'm sure that a lot of Academy voters watch Till. It's not like one of these great films where you're thinking like, it's foreign, 
no one in the Academy watched it, so therefore that's why it's not got any love. So, yeah, Andrea Riceborough for To Leslie and Anna de Armas for Blonde over Daniel Deadwiler just seems really odd, doesn't it? Like, how did that happen? And there was, I think, a Guardian article uh, last week that kind of said, yeah, Andrew Risborough might get an Oscar nomination because there's a real push behind this film. But the fact that it came when it was announced, 90% of people probably had never heard of it. Yeah, absolutely. And is it the only Oscar that the film was nominated for? Yeah. Yeah, again, it's so weird. It's like, she's probably very, very good in it. It just didn't, no one was talking about it. I read and listened to so much stuff that was talking about Till and Daniel Deadweiler, and it's like, okay, well, that's an absolute certainty for a nomination. It just seems like, a, well, there's there has to be a reason for that. Um, but anyway, yeah. And Viola Davis in The Woman King is like, yeah, but that film in general has just been, I mean... Overlooked. Yeah, it has, hasn't it? Have you seen it? No, that was one I didn't get around to. No, me neither. Apparently it's very, very good. And I will watch it. And be one of those that I'll watch and go, oh, that was very good. I should have watched that at the cinema. That's the thing. It does. It feels like a cinema watch or like, you know, at least a TV watch. And I went through a period of watching everything on my laptop. And I was like, I don't think that's going to really do this justice. Yeah, that is one of the things. When you get a link and it's like, <laughs> back to the computer. Not, I mean, like, you know, what a first world problem. But yeah, other than that, the Oscars were pretty as expected so everything everywhere all at once got 11 nominations and leads the pack is 11 the most that a film can get because it always seems to be 11 like return of the king got 11 oscar nominations titanic got 11 and ben-hur got 11 and it was always like it's the most oscar nominations since ben-hur was what they were saying about the titanic 11 and then it's like another 11 so i was thinking is 11 the most that a single film can get no because it hasn't been nominated for Best Actor, so it could have got... Yeah, so it could have 12 at least. But 11 away seems to be the number that they peak out at, which is not bad. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that it's, you know... I, I think it's a great film, and it's, it's really nice that it's been recognised by the Academy in a way that you feel wouldn't have happened even five years ago. And the fact it's like, you know, the Daniels, um, Shana and Kwan, directors of Swiss Army Man. <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> it's great when you get that sort of thing happen. Uh, so that's not meant to be a slight on Swiss Army Man. I really like Swiss Army Man. But you didn't think soon these guys are going to make a film that is going to completely set the indie scene on fire, sweep the world, and probably win Michelle Yeoh an Oscar. <laughs> I so hope Michelle Yeoh wins. I think it's between her and... I've got the nominations here. Let's have a look. There was one other person I thought could get it, and that would be Kate Blanchett, of course, for Tar. I'd be surprised if she won. Oh no, I wouldn't. Nothing would surprise me. But actually, many things would surprise me. Nothing would surprise me in this instant if <laughs> if Kate Blanchett was to win for Tar. I think because she's already got quite a lot of awards under her belt. And she's got an Oscar though, actually. Did she win for The Aviator? Yes, very well remembered. Yes, she did. So she's got Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Yeah, Tar is one that's really, really divided people. So you weren't a huge fan, were you? No. And I've got a friend who really, really hated it. Others are just giving it five stars. It got five stars in The Guardian, and Empire gave it five stars, and it's really, really divisive, and I have to watch it. But I so hope it's Michelle Yeoh, though, just because Michelle Yeoh <laughs> to win yeah, an she, Oscar she, would be fucking brilliant. If she and K.H. Kwan both win. <sighs> I mean, that'd be like, okay, that's fine. Whatever else happens to this Oscars, I'm basically okay and I, I, I know you're about to say the same but imagine if it was like and the best picture goes to Top Gun Maverick you would be so annoyed <laughs> I'd be livid 
Kei Hei Kwan wins the Best Supporting Actor, and Michelle Yeoh wins Best Actress, and Jamie Lee Curtis won Best Supporting Actress. That would be just, that would be perfect. But it's, I'd say, that the Best Supporting Actress, you know, Angela Bassett for Black Panther, Hong Chao for The Whale, Kerry Condon for The Banshees of Inner Sharon, and Stephanie Hu as well for um, Everything Everywhere. So it's like, I mean, that's a... And does she, and does... Having two nominees yeah. from that for kind of spit the love, it's the Godfather, you know. It's uh... absolutely. I mean, I would say, I mean, it would be so lovely if that film also got that as well. But I'd say for me, it should go to Kerry Condon because I thought she was so so brilliant. But, for uh, me, it's probably Hong Chao. I think she's she's brilliant in the whale. Yeah, that's the thing. I do need to see the whale. And she's really good in the menu. Yeah, because I was going to say, she was so great in the menu, yeah. We're not going to go through all of the Oscars noms, don't worry. But Only um, the technical categories. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So best production design. Well, one of them is the favourite ones. <laughs> Wonderful segue. Good segue. Well, just to quickly finish off saying I'm very glad that Bill Nighy got a nom for living. Actors wide open. It's probably going to be Brendan Fraser for The Whale, though. You think? I mean... I mean, yeah. I, I think it's probably going to be Brendan Fraser because the sheer weight of kind of love behind him is... But also, you know, Bill Nye for Living, it's, it's, you know, I think that's his first nom. Um, you're right. Paul Mescal for After Sun, which was my film of the year. I was going to say, your man's in there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Quite nice that the lead actors in both our films of the year are up for Oscars. Yeah. And it's like Colin Farrell for Banshees. Mm. And um, of Austin Butler, of course. For, I think if it's not Brendan Fraser, it will probably be Austin Butler. Yeah, I think you're right. Although Colin Farrell is getting a huge amount of love, and when it was announced yesterday, when they were announcing the nominations, he got a massive cheer when his name was said. So I actually think it's between Brendan Fraser and Colin Farrell. Wanted to quickly go into director because your man Spielberg's up for the Fablemans. James Cameron isn't for Avatar, which I think is wrong because. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Although, Roberts, it's best director, not most director. <laughs> yeah, very good. Although that said, you know, we're having just made that joke, Baz Luhrmann is, is nominated, isn't he? No, he's not. He's not? Okay, okay. That's so very good point. My joke stands, my joke stands. Well, no, he's not because um, uh, Ruben Osland is for Triangle of Sadness, and it's like, I'm sorry, I just don't think that was a particularly amazingly well-directed film. I think it was, I mean, it was fine. I don't actually think that was a particularly good film, to be honest. It was an average movie, that was. Another Palm Door winner that's like, I just don't, I'm sorry, but The Emperor's New Clothes are not looking that good. Triangle of Sadness should have got production design nom because the sets were very good when they were moving up and down. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, for that film, like, for that film to get a best director nom over Baz Luhrmann, yeah, but over James Cameron as well for Avatar, it's like, I don't know, I just, yeah, fine. And Avatar is up for best film and is up for visual effects and um, a few of the technical ones, but yeah, there's not a huge amount of Oscar love for Avatar and there was for the first movie, although, of course, it lost out to the Hurt Locker for that. Were there any others in, in the best film? Just trying to find the best film category. Here we go. Because there were 10 this year, weren't there? Which I, as a general rule, think there should be. It's like... Yeah, if you can't find 10 films. I mean, it's always worth eight. Why? <laughs> yeah, like, why? So, All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar Way of Water, The Banishes of Inner Sheeran, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, and Top Gun Maverick, a Triangle of Sadness, Women Talking... Which was really, that was a really nice surprise because she said was completely overlooked. That didn't get a single nomination. But I'm very glad that Women Talking did because that is also another strong film. It also got a um, Best Screenplay nom. Um, That's right, yeah. Which, yeah, it's great to see Sarah Polly getting recognition. Though if it, if it were to win, I, I think it's unlikely to win Best Picture. If it were, seeing Frances McDormand getting up to accept yet another Oscar would be very funny. <laughs> yeah, because she's one of the producers. It's like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> 
and just walk off and be like, just a thing she does now. Once a year. Yep, I'll go out for next episode Oscar for something. They just, even if I haven't made anything that year, they'll just invent a category for me just to get me back. Um, if ever told two wins, they're still sending Francis McDormand. That's right. She's painted blue, but she's still there. Women Talking is never going to win at the Best Picture Oscar. Well, the um, fact you got overlooked in all, in all acting categories. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's another thing where it's like... Ensemble. Which we're going to talk about for this film as well, because there are actors in this film, The Fablemans, where it's like, Paul Dano's not up for Best Supporting Actor, and Michelle Williams is up for Best Actress, which just seems a bit weird, even though she is the lead female actor in the film. It's just the way the film positions the adults, but we'll get on to that. I mean, if you go to Top Gun Maverick, could you imagine that? Could you imagine my fury on the next episode? <laughs> that is wide open, though. I mean, I think Everything Everywhere is the favourite. And it would be ace if that won. But this could there could be a weird glitch. And it could be Top Gun. It could be the Banshees of Inner Sharing, but I don't know. We'll see. Yes. So, always say it. They don't mean anything. But it's hard not to get on board with it. <laughs> <laughs> And just talk about it for ages ago. Oh. Yeah, do you know what? If 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 Top Gun Maverick wins, it's going to look like it's Tom Cruise going up in one of those aviator helmets with the, the sunglasses down. But when he reaches the top, he's going to tip it up. It's actually Francis McDormand. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Tom couldn't be here tonight. <laughs> tied up in the toilet, like Mission Impossible Three. That's right. Very quickly about makeup effects. That's it. There was, um, I mean, Avatar, was, right? Well, yeah, yeah they, did, they did it. All practical effects, like yeah. that's right. What? <laughs> well, the Batman obviously got it because it made Colin Farrell look like Richard Kind, and what was the other one? Elvis, of course, for Tom Hanks. Did Elvis get actually get nominated? I think it did. Yeah, let me let me just check. But I'm pretty sure because there were two very obvious ones. Yeah, Black Panther's in there as well. Elvis is in there. The Whale. But there was a film called Per. No, called X. Sorry, that was made last year. And that has an amazing makeup job in there that is almost a magic trick. When you realise what is happening, it's like, that is an illusion. I have been fooled by what I've seen. Oh my God, the makeup is amazing. It's it's interesting that it's a year of like transformative makeup roles. Mm. Because yeah, Batman, obviously, um, for Colin Farrell, The Whale for Brendan Fraser, Elvis for Tom Hanks. Yep. Well, Norbit was, you know, I mean, <laughs> that was um, Oscar nominated. And this does seem to be the year of the fat suit because all of them are kind of um, thin actors who have been like, you know, bogged Wh- up. Where and... was the fat suit in Avatar? Keep going back to that. Well, um... <laughs> no, there isn't, isn't there? <laughs> the, the whale. The actual whale. The whale. the whale itself, that's very good. Yes, the whale itself, that was the fat suit. <laughs> Yeah, I actually think that was Tilda Swinton. <laughs> I mean, transformed. You would never guess it was her. But uh, anyway, we talked enough about this. I'm, I'm slightly disappointed now that you said that for the complete lack of any love for 3,000 Years of Longing, because it's a visually spectacular film. Mm, I mean, that should have got production design. I mean, that should have got enough. But I just don't think that enough of the Academy would have even watched that. It's George like, Miller! I know. I mean, you like Fury Road, right? Yeah, that should have got a nod for production yeah, design. If it had been called, costume design. If it had been called Mad Max 3,000 Years of Longing, you'd have fucking watched it. That's right. I'm a bit Aussie there, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> you fucking galah. <laughs> What do you fucking do, mate? Fucking drum go. <laughs> so, The Fablemans. Nominated for seven Oscars. The Best Picture, Direction, Original Screenplay, Actress, Supporting Actor for Judd Hirsch, and Score, and Production Design. 
And weirdly, only got a single nomination at the BAFTAs. And that was for um, original screenplay. And it won Best Director and the Best Motion Picture Drama at the Golden Globes. So it's a weird one because like, there is a lot of awards love for this film. But not a lot of audience love. So this is a film that opened in the States just before Christmas. I think it's got to about 15 million in the States and 22 million around the world. It, well, by the time you hear this, it will have opened in the UK. But again, it's like another Steven Spielberg film two years in a row, because West Side Story was the previous one, that everyone loves, but it just flops. He's loved by the Academy. He's loved by film fans. Maybe just the current generation of filmgoers don't care. They see him as like a relic. They see him as somebody like, you know... And he's in his late 70s. So yeah, yeah I think you're right. I think he is one of those. That... And I think in this case... The fact that, you know, it's clearly like, you know, words like deeply personal labour of love in most cases make my buttocks clench. Yeah, indeed. Because it makes you go, oh, this is going to be, it's indulgent as fuck. It's going to be Bardo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to be Bardo, <laughs> which got a cinematography nom. A well-deserved. Um, yes, indeed. Yeah, because that was one of the... Was that Darius Conji? Yeah. Who, of course, was a cinematographer for Seven and many other films as well. But uh, yeah, let's get into The Fablemans. Um, but I think, I think you're right, though. I think it is one of those where it's like... Maybe Steven Spielberg, the most successful filmmaker of all time. Maybe the younger generation just like what is influenced rather than, and they're just not interested in him. Because Ready Player One was kind of a hit, but he hasn't had a, a massive hit since <clears throat> Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. He's been making films and he's making very, very good films, but oh yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Mm, anyway, so the IMDb synopsis for this one. Growing Actually, I'm doing all the talking. Do you want to do this one? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking, I'm hogging the podcast. Growing up in post-World War II-era Arizona, young Sammy Faberman aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence, but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. That's pretty good. So this, of course, is a partly autobiographical tale of Steven Spielberg's childhood. So Spielberg was someone who, from a very early age love cinema and turn that love of cinema into making his own movies. He made films with his sisters and his friends in Arizona. He was encouraged to do this as a hobby by his dad. I think his dad got him a film camera so he could do that. We see these things happen. I mean, it's a film that's called The Fablemans, so therefore it is based on his life. There's a lot in here that I don't think is true. But it's a fable. It is a it's it's a fable about the most famous director of all time, about his childhood. Did you read a lot about Steven Spielberg when you were growing up and when you were getting into film? No, not really. Yeah, I did. I really like Steven Spielberg. It's, I, mean, I, 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 mean, about... I read like the Jaws logbook. I mean, I read a lot about his films. I didn't really. I think it was just because in the eighties, it's like, well, my God, in the eighties, his hits were really, really recent, and they were still happening. Like I'm, yeah, Jaws. I'm sorry, are we forgetting the nineties, specifically Hook. Yes, well, yes, indeed, yes, we'll get on to Hook. But yeah, but I remember him talking about going to see The Greatest Show on Earth, which is the film, Cecil B. DeMille film. Which is in The Fablemans. Well, that's the thing, is that he talked about it, and he talked about the fact that he thought he was going to the circus, and thought he was going to see the animals, and was really, really disappointed when he got to the cinema. And it's like, all oh, right, so this is just on a screen, there are no animals here. All right. And then watching the film, and having an utterly formative experience and being thrilled and scared and then yeah. trying to recreate that experience himself which we see in the film and that kind of stuff is like 
wow, you really are kind of going into the stuff that I read as a kid about your childhood. To What would have happened if his parents had actually taken young Steven Spielberg to the circus? What a different world. That's one of the great unanswered questions of history. And I think the film is really... I mean, they, they, obviously there's the, the degree of sentimentality. This, and I don't, not, not using that as a dirty word. Um, that's inherent in a lot of Spielberg's earned sentiment, sorry, let's say. And yeah, in terms of you've got the young, the young Sammy using the train set to recreate the train crash from Greatest Show. And it's a film about how, to a degree, about how both making and watching films provides a control, a sort of a feeling of control that can also help you process trauma. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was very surprised by this film. It opens up and the aesthetic seems very much like a TV movie. It seems very ordinary. The visuals don't seem particularly alive. And it's like, oh, okay, right. So this is going to be the look of this film then. It's like, but this is presumably going to be one of his most personal films. This is about his childhood. And And it all looks very clean and very neat to start with. Oh, it does, yeah. But just the camera placement seems very... Like, yeah, you would put that there to make sure all the action's been captured. It doesn't seem to be the most imaginative way to frame that shot or to present that scene. And then I kind of realised that um, over the course of the film, that it's like, this is a director who doesn't want to give you flash because his childhood wasn't flashy. He wants to kind of draw you in and absorb you in the film. And you suddenly realise, actually, that these visuals are great and that they are really rich and warm, that there's a real sense of everything being shot from the height of the character of Sammy, who is the Steven Spielberg surrogate in the film, played by Gabrielle LaBelle as a teen and then into early adulthood. Everything's being framed from his height, really. And it's also a film of doing slow zoom-ins to people's faces. And it would be interesting to compare this film to Spielberg's other films to see how much face action is this given compared to his other films. Particularly faces that are kind of trying to control emotion. Yeah, I just thought this was a really, really fascinating film in terms of how it is dealing with trauma. But it's a trauma that no one really wants to talk about. And it's a trauma that's kind of hidden. And film is a way to reveal the truth, but also a way to change it as well. And to make it more acceptable or to come to terms with it so you reframe it through film because there are certain things that when he's making his home movies that he doesn't realize that he's capturing on camera it's one of three films this year that's kind of a love letter to cinema yeah along with um babylon and um uh empire of light yeah. And one of two films to and Bardo. <laughs> and Bardo, yes. <laughs> and one of two films to actually explain the principle, the optical principle by which celluloid works, how the passage of rapid passage of frames creates the illusion of movement and And what's that called? I don't what is that called? That's called the persistence of vision. The persistence of vision, that's um, which actually was slight, was queried in the early noughties, I think. The idea that when you run twenty four single images through a projector, a second that matches the speed that an eye reads movement. That's why it looks like they're moving pictures, because they are literally moving pictures. So is that why 48 frames per second looks twice as good? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Twice as real. Twice as real. Oh my god. Yeah, I don't think that um, Steven Spielberg is a director that really thinks that he needs to do that. Fableman's at 48 frames per second. (laughs) What have you done? You've made an episode of a sitcom. It's, um... 
But yeah, so I thought that the deceptively simple visual style was really impressive because then you suddenly find that you're really into the film and these characters and the way that this is being presented is just makes it one of the classic films of childhood. I think that this film is going to become a film like The Spirit of the Beehive and mm. stuff like that, that it's like, well, this is a classic film of childhood, particularly with Spirit of the Beehive being around the power of cinema, although the two films are very, very different. It's a raw film in some ways, and it's a painful film, and Spielberg was, as a team, was traumatised by the rockiness of his parents' marriage, and that comes through as well. But it's weird, even though it's like a Jewish family, it all seems quite waspish in a way, Mm. in terms of like, yeah, no one's really talking about anything, and you get the fact that the Paul Dano character, who plays the dad, who likes Steven Spielberg's dad, is a brilliant engineer, like a genius himself. And just hasn't got the emotional intelligence to really realise. I mean, he seems quite obtuse in some ways. Yeah, and quite, and he's, so he's very buttoned up and very... And you've got Michelle Williams' character, who plays Mitzi, who's, um, who's Spielberg's mum, who's a pianist and is very, very artistic, but very temperamental and has mental health issues. And it is interesting, you know, not to be too reductive, how those different, two different influences obviously play on the character of Sammy, and presumably, to what degree it's true, the real-life Steven Spielberg, who's a creative genius, but also has a command of technology. Hmm. And apparently this is very, very accurate to how his mum was. His mum was, I mean, I'm not sure if she was diagnosed bipolar, but certainly had those sort of traits where she could be the life of the party. She could also be erratic to the point where it would worry the kids and things like that. And there are some wonderful scenes in this film where the daughters, uh, so Sammy's sisters, Natalie and Reggie, is it, I think, played by... Julia Butters and Keely Carson. Julia Butters, of course... From Once Upon a Time in... Well, okay, the second time that film's been mentioned in this spot. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, who plays the young um, actress who's working with Leonardo DiCaprio on the Western. That's right, yeah. And they're kind of having to be the mum surrogate because Mitzi is just out of control sometimes. There is that amazing scene where she chases a tornado. tornado. And thinking, is that true? I mean, there's obviously there's Which things about clearly... the Wizard of Oz in there and stuff like that. But it's like, is, is that a true account? Did your mum literally drive after a tornado with the kids in the car? Well, I think that's what inspired Spielberg to make Twister. Yeah. <laughs> what? what? Did what? he produce that one? He probably did. No, I, that, that wasn't that was, that was, that was a lie. But like... <laughs> he might have had something to do with it. But yeah, so there's all these different things in this film. Seth Rogen's in there as the friend of the family is Paul Dano's best friend. What is Paul? Benny. And Paul Dano's... Bert. Bert. And then Benny, who's the kind of fun uncle. Yes, he's the funkle. <laughs> as I believe the kids are saying. To talk about what happens in the film, it's like, well, it's kind of a standard story in terms of a teen who's who's very much wrapped up in his own world, learning that there's a much bigger world around him and it's messy and he's having to come to terms with the mess of it. And it's a coming of age story. I mean, there's like the first flush of romance in this, which is really, really funny, I thought, in terms of how that was treated. And again, it would be interesting to say, well, is, is that true? I don't want to spoil it here, but is that true that your first girlfriend that you were having those sort of dates with her and you've uh, you've got Judd Hirsch who's Oscar nominated as is, as is, uh, is his granduncle Boris who's this kind of eccentric garrulous you know that he's lived a life he just turns up out of the blue and he gets an amazing monologue about art and the sacrifices you make and being driven which you know which I, yeah, to some degree I, I feel is true but also makes me um I've got a reading of the movie Interstellar which is kind of it's uh, Christopher Nolan giving himself permission to be away from home yeah when his kids are growing up because he's got to be out there saving the universe. And this also, this monologue in that feels a bit like it. Spielberg being like, 
well, of course I was, I may have been occasionally selfish with my relationships while, you know, but I was off making films. But you see, my granduncle Boris made very clear to me that I would have to do that. That's right. So it's all okay. <laughs> because Boris said so. He said that I would be hated at some times. And it's like, I would have to be selfish to uh, achieve my dreams. <laughs> to achieve what I was put here to do. I did like that though. I like that scene because it seemed very, very realistic. And this whole thing, and the kid performances are just great. And it's like, yep, you've got Spielberg, who of course, yeah, from E.T., but also the kids in Jaws and Close Encounters. Yeah, he's, he's quite good with them, with those kids. He's pretty good with kids, isn't he? <laughs> and it's like, and that scene with Gabriel Labar and, um, no, Bell, sorry, and Judd Hirsch did play really realistic, I thought, in terms of the Sammy character really resisting what he was being told because it was difficult and it was messy and it wasn't going to cast him as a hero. And Judd Hirsch saying, you don't know anything about life. If it's what you want to do, you're going to have to realise at certain times your family is not going to be that important to you. And you're going to be much more interested in this here. And there are going to be things here that are going to get damaged because of that. Yeah, and I didn't think he was going to get Oscar nominated when I saw the scene, but I thought that was a brilliant scene. Yeah, so there's all these different things in there. Anti-Semitism in there as well. And yeah, the interesting thing about that is that it comes quite late in the film. It's not in Arizona because, you know, to spoil it, but there is some movement geographically in the film as well as emotionally. And the anti-Semitism comes quite late when they move to somewhere that you think would be a bit more liberal. And it's like, well, is that just because you weren't aware of it as much when you were younger? But then when you became a teen, it was one of those things that became a very easy way to bully you. Or was that just the case that Arizona actually was pretty open-minded? And the anti-Semitism, I thought, was handled well. It wasn't well, I, it, it wasn't brutal, but it was cruel. It was one of those things that it was constant. The bullying was always about the fact that he was Jewish. Yeah, as you say, being used by bullies as the way to bully him. It was yeah. the, that whole sequence, that kind of uh, him, him being bullied, is tied into a larger point the film's making around film cinema being a tool for empathy. Mm. And a way to to really capture people and make them feel seen. And I think I think the idea of seeing through cinema is maybe even the the prevalent theme of the film in terms of what cinema reveals and how cinema can show us to ourselves. Yeah, indeed. But there's also another thing there that it's like cinema can also change something and can change the meaning and actually reflect something like an element of someone and leave all the other elements to one side and make an ideal of someone when in actual fact that person is not the best person Mm. in the room you know which thing i'm talking about but there's a really really good scene when someone sees themselves and has to reconcile with how they've been photographed and it's like is this your peeping tom as well because the camera can lie and that i thought was a really brilliant way that the camera lied it's a deceptively brilliant film this the fablemans is a film the more i talk about it the more i like it yeah me too it's like i loved it when i saw it because you watched it before me and i text you after saying i just love that and you hated it, I think. <laughs> no, it, 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 it was a good. It was a good afternoon when the screening link for that appeared in my in my email. It was like a link for the Fablemans. No, we were at dinner, weren't we? Yeah, we were yeah, having, yeah. And it was like, and you said, "Oh, we've got a link for the Fablemans and for She Said." It's like, oh, how brilliant! Two films I really, really want to see. But yeah, yeah, it's one of those where the more you talk about it, the more you think actually, no, that was brilliant. Also, there was that the great scene, and I actually made a note of it. So let me just find the note. Um, yes, that's it. When. Because Spielberg would make westerns and he made a war film and he, and he made a sci-fi film. The only thing that was a bit disappointing about this film was that we didn't see any of Amblin, which was the sci-fi film he made. And about an hour long. And he charged people to see it because I think it cost quite a lot of money. And he um, basically he almost exactly... You think he made that film made one dollar, didn't it? Something like that. But he did turn a profit on his first like, you know, professional film. We don't see that. We do see the war film that he made and we do see a bit of the western that he made. 
What I loved about the scenes when he was making the films was that you see the fact that he knows how to move the camera because you see the camera moving. But the only real direction that you see is when he's directing the actors in terms of an emotional performance. And there's that lovely scene when he's telling that guy on the war movie, that kind of... I say guy, he's not a guy. He was a teenager. He was like a school kid as well. Giving him direction. Yeah. You know, your your family's died and you're responsible for it. Yeah. And also the school kid who's not an actor, who's just kind of there because they need somebody who looks the part. That's right. And he's having to get him to give this really emotional performance. So basically just... You could say emotionally manipulates him, but actually just explains the character to him. And... He really gets it, and then it kind of just becomes a bit going. Too, too much for him. I, again, that was just a great scene. I think maybe I think maybe the reason that Amblin isn't in there, and or, and the sci-fi elements are because I think is maybe because of ET, his career is so identified with that yeah. that it would feel too almost too iconic, too on the nose, too I on think. the nose. Yeah. yeah, indeed. But that was the other thing sorry, that I was going to say about this is that he's a filmmaker that has been formed by his childhood and for a filmmaker who's always said he is the king of suburbia and the champion of suburbia there's a lot of dysfunctional families in his movies i mean if you think about yeah close encounters et um last crusade yeah indeed I mean, like, yeah, like, but, yeah. but yeah it's like <laughs> exactly. he's, that's he's a joke but it's also true it's I mean, also, like, yeah the arc of the film is basically like, you know, the thing that they're trying to get to is like a reconciliation of their relationship. The Holy Grail is literally the MacGuffin. Hook, he's a bad dad. And again, it's like he has to learn how to be a good dad when Hook is a film that is like a childhood favourite of yours. And it's a fascinating film that it is often individual moments that film are brilliant. It just doesn't have a lot of charm to it. And what, but what, is, and what is the final word? What are the final words of Captain Hook before he's swallowed by the crocodile? Oh, go on. Yeah. I want my mummy! And then <laughs> yeah, the crocodile goes. <laughs> But then you got stuff like Schindler's List and Oscar Schindler as true to the real life. Oscar Schindler just couldn't, was a serial philanderer and just doomed his marriage because his wife just, yeah, ultimately just had enough. And Jurassic Park about a surrogate family. Well, that's right, yeah. There's often a dysfunctional family, but he always thinks that the family is worth protecting and saving. And that's the thing that actually helps save the day at the end. And even his first film, Jewel, is about one man's dysfunctional relationship with a big rig. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think, does he have... No, no, he seems... No, no, he's pretty... He's he's pretty... He just married, isn't he? um, But the Sugarland Express, I mean, that's like... I know a pretty dysfunctional family, right? I mean, yeah, they're on the run and it's... um, But they're trying to keep the unit together. So, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of this stuff that comes through in something evil. 1941. Yeah. Well, that's just the Manson family. But Something Evil, which was a TV movie made in 1973 about a family that move into this house and the mum gets possessed by an evil spirit. And it's like, you can't tell me that there wasn't some of your mum informing that particular story because your mum's this amazing person who then begins to act really erratically and dangerously and scarily it's like um okay right but none of it seemed it all seemed false. like element yeah it all seemed like elements of, of good storytelling obviously you need family such an important basis in most people's lives and conflict drives story so family conflict it's yeah but michelle williams i mean yeah, I've had friends who said that they just thought that she gave a terrible performance, like, yeah, an embarrassing performance. And it's like, no, I, just, no, I, I don't. No, I don't think that at all. I, I thought she gave the performance of someone who, who did give up a career because she is a concert pianist and is obviously very, very talented, but gave that up to have a family, but has a real extrovert theatrical zeal to her that means that this life isn't really enough for her and she's not excited by enough. That just comes through again and again, I think. And then there's that amazing scene when she talks to Sammy when 
we can't really spoil it, but it's like there's a big emotional peak in the film and it's a two-hander with her and Gabrielle LaBelle. And it's like, again, it's just two people talking. So it kind of mirrors the scene with Judd Hirsch in which he's having to see or learn some pretty harsh truths about the adult world. And yeah, it's like, oh, it's just so brilliant. Based on the films that I've seen this year, I mean, our top, our, our top 10, our films of the year are always based on what's been released in the UK that year. Yeah. I think out of the films that have now been, that many of them which we saw last year that have now been released in the UK this year, or shortly are to be released, um, The Fablemans is probably my number one. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of anything that I saw last year that hasn't been uh, released yet. But yeah, if this isn't in my top 10, then, oh, wow, we've got a good year of films ahead of us because there'll be 10 films better than this. Yeah, it was really, really good. And it also goes up to early adulthood as he's trying to get into the film industry. It is uncanny how much Gabrielle LaBelle looks like a young Steven Spielberg in some of those scenes. Like, weird. <laughs> like, is this like some Megan face replacement going on? Because I just, again, because I was reading these books, and they weren't biographies, they were the films of Steven Spielberg, or that kind of stuff, where it, it more focused on his film, but you got a lot of family trivia in there as well. But lots of pictures of him directing Duel. And Gabrielle LaBelle looks very much like circa 1971 Steven Spielberg by the end of the film. It's like, wow, okay. Are there any photos of him directing that episode of Columbo? Actually, I'm not sure if there is, but there's there's definitely one of him directing Joan Crawford in the Night Gallery. <laughs> nice. Which um, he, of course, went over schedule and over budget on, which you never did on a TV show. And then he couldn't work for a year. Because he didn't know what he was... Well, because he didn't plan, he says. So then when he got the chance to do Columbo, he just storyboarded everything. And, yeah, and he, apparently he made such a good impression because, like, you know, you've got Peter Falk saying, yeah, there's this kid who basically, you know, was shooting me from with long lenses from across the street and he wasn't teaching it. It's just, like, just a TV assignment. Yeah. And everyone was but, like, yeah, he turned up. He was, you know, he was, he was organised. He knew what he wanted to do. It's like, yeah, this kid's going to be arguably the greatest <laughs> filmmaker ever. <laughs> That's a really good point because I don't think the Steven Spielberg is the greatest filmmaker ever, but he is one of them, right? But when I was at university in the 90s, one of our lecturers said that his favourite director was Steven Spielberg. And there was a real wincing at that from some of the people on the course, as if he'd given the wrong answer. It's like, well, you can't be teaching film and have Steven Spielberg as your favourite director because his films are frivolous. This was after Schindler's List, but it was just saying it was like, well, he makes popcorn movies. And we're studying film, and his films are not worth studying. As I mean, of course, it's, you know, when I studied film, it was it was very much on the theory more than the form, to the point where I now think, well, that was a bit of a problem with how I studied film. But don't audiences go to film for the theory? I mean, the form is secondary, surely. Nobody, That's right. Nobody, <laughs> I mean, nobody ever walks out of a film going, my God, that was so, you know, the, the theoretical that, underpinnings. That's of- right, yeah, the way that that tackled semiotic film theory and the interplay of signs and signifiers, oh my God, just so amazing. I mean, that said, the same lecturer was an absolute disciple of Freudian film theory. He just believed all of the theories of Freud. And there was one lecture where he was talking about Freudian film theory. And we just started giggling because it was like, I'm sorry, but this guy is... I mean, he really has started off with the end result that he wants to go and reverse engineer yeah just reverse engineered everything so I mean, that in all fairness if he was talking about jaws you'd be like yeah i can understand that, that yes indeed the, right. you know the id ego super ego the of the vagina yeah it was one of those where i'm sorry but the yeah, freudian film theory has its time and its place and that time is yeah now, any film any film that's made pretty much like yeah 1942 three to maybe the late 50s and 
But it's interesting that it, it was seen as the wrong answer to say that Steven Spielberg could be your favourite director. It's like, well, I mean, that scene in Hook with Robin Williams in that kind of cave thing, and I think it's him in the, the, him and the, the, the Wendy house, in the treehouse. Treehouse, that's it, yeah. Where he finds the teddy bear. And is it him and the kid? Or is it him on his own? It's him on his own. Yeah, it's it's him on his own. And the blocking of that scene, as in where he's moving and where the camera's moving around him. I mean, Hook is not the best film that Steven Spielberg has made. But that scene is like, well, that is how you shoot a person on their own in a confined space and make it exhilarating. And also like an adult who's too big for a child's space. Yeah, indeed. So you this, film, isn't, this, yeah. Is, this is not designed for him. This is like, he's, he's disconnected from this environment, which, you know... You know, used to be his home. Yeah. And obviously he finds the teddy bear and that kind of become, you know, brings back his happy thought. It's one of those things that you shoot it with a wide lens. So he seems really big and everything seems like, you know, distorted around him and everything's, it's like... And then... And, then, oh, and, and then, it's all from like a low angle and, oh, it's just amazing. And then, and then he takes off and flies. So I'm sure Freudian film theory has nothing to do with this. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, And then he soars over Netherland and you see the compass. You actually see the compass on the... Which I loved as a kid. Yeah, I absolutely yeah, loved that detail. It's like, it's so clever. <laughs> yes. At some point we're going to have to do... Um, just get really morbid when he merges with the infinite where we do the top five Spielberg films or something. But my God, that would be probably going to be a series, right? But yeah, it is one of those I, things. I don't know if I could include Hook in my top five, though. I, I'd like, I'd, I, it'd be like top five films that I think are probably his top five. And then I also need to talk about Hook because it was such a big childhood influence on me. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I wouldn't put Temple of Doom into his top five films, but oh my God, does that have just some of the best moments of adventure cinema? So well directed, that film is. Um, Starring, uh, hopefully, soon to be Oscar winning actor, Kei Kwan. That's right. Yes, indeed. Oh, what a world that would be. Okay, then, is there anything else to say about The Fablemans other than everyone should go out and see it? And it is, and it's long, it's two and a half hours. Um, doesn't feel it. Doesn't, it really doesn't. It flies by. It's a knives out two hour plus film. This one just, whew. there's a wonderful cameo at the end that we're not going to spoil. I say two hour plus films are obviously are kind of our bet noir at this point. But it's like, yeah, unless you're I don't, Ryan Johnson or Steven Spielberg, your film doesn't need to be longer than two hours. It's a very <laughs> short list of directors. Yeah. And even they have to, like, if you want to make a two-hour-plus film, your last film has to have been great. And then if you make a two-hour-plus film that's not great, you then have to go back and making shorter films until you've made enough shorter films till you can make a two-hour-plus film again. See, this is why we do this podcast, because I was literally going to say you would have put Christopher Nolan in there. Yeah. But because of everything you've just said, his last film was exactly that. It was a bloated two-and-a-half-hour film that was like, no, you need to go back and just make short films again, I'm I mean, afraid. If, yeah, Oppenheimer, you're allowed to be two hours long. Yeah, 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 indeed. Yeah. It's, it's longer than three it's, hours. It's almost certainly close to three hours, isn't it? <sighs> it can't be, though, because of the Paul Newman, Dwight Schultz film Shadow Makers, also known as Fat Man and Little Boy, that was made in 1989, is the exact same story, The Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer, and it's two hours long, and is really, really good. We're going to have to try and see if we can find that one. Underrated actor Dwight Schultz. Yeah, indeed. He is so brilliant as Oppenheimer. You would never cast Murdoch from the A-Team as Oppenheimer, but he is or, fantastic. Uh, and Rudge Barkley from uh, Star Trek Next Gen. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that one's for you, Karen and Jesse. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the that's one for us. <laughs> that's one for Star Trek. And Bobby. And uh, yeah, that's that one for our, uh, our Star Trek contingent. I believe they're known as Trekkers. Trekkies. Or Trekkers. Trekkers. <laughs> I don't want to get into this whole Trekkie Trekker debacle. That's from the documentary Trekkers, okay. which is very, very good. <laughs> yeah, is there anything else to say? I'm looking at my notes. I think we've covered 
Well, I think I've covered just about everything, but is there anything else that you want to say about the film? No, I think we pretty much agree on this one. Well, we do that sometimes. Yeah, we, yeah sometimes. <laughs> when you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're not embarrassingly wide of the mark. And this is Spielberg's 34th movie, which is not bad going. Yeah, yeah pretty good. B+. Plus. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, anything else? See, the Fablemans, you know, again, as I said, usually passion project and deeply personal and words like that would make my buttocks clench. Even with Spielberg, I was like, ooh, we're gonna, I'm a little bit wary of this, but it's a delight. It is. Yeah, that's the word to use. It is an absolute delight and has a wonderful final shot as well. The final shot just made me laugh out loud with glee and humour um, and mirth, sorry, because it, it's just, yeah, it's just a wonderful final shot. You mean that the um, ending montage celebrating the evolution of cinema? Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> that's right, yeah. The one that, yeah, and actually that's a really good point because the end of Babylon, oh my God, talk about undisciplined, just weird fanboyism. And then you get the end of this film that does something kind of similar, but in a much... More Cl- elegant. Elegant, mature. Funny. Funny. I mean, everything about it is like, oh my God, that was brilliant. That was such a brilliant way to end this film. It's not huge, but it's like, ah, oh, ah. Oh. It's the most <laughs> memorable end shot of any film I've seen in ages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ah, oh, it's just so, yeah, a delight. That is the way to describe this film. Cool. Okay, then, well, if that's it, let's do our plugs. Okay. So, Rob, if people wanted to find you on the internet, where could they do that? Uh, yeah, if you're looking for me online, you can find me on Twitter uh, for the moment at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing such as it is, which I've written a couple of pieces recently, out of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, Mr. Daniel and I co-host another podcast called Another Time McLeod, which is a scene-by-scene analysis, general appreciation of the cult classic Highlander. Currently on hiatus, though we have actually completed our um, discussion of the first film. But yeah, you can find that wherever you're listening to this. Again, it's called Another Time McLeod. You can follow that on Twitter, at McLeod time or drop us a Highlander themed email at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. Thank you very much. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. You can more importantly follow this podcast on Twitter at MovieRobcast. And if you liked what you heard, then why not rate and or review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Everyone likes leaving a star rating, don't they? And it's just good fun, it doesn't take any time, and there's just nothing better than looking at five stars. So anyway, I'm just going to leave you with that thought. But honestly, it is always much appreciated. It does help us with the algorithms and our rankings within them and stuff like that. And uh, yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rob. And thank you very much, Rob. And thank you for listening. And yes, we'll be back with you soon. If you do this, you'll probably never see your family again. What about their families? I have a daughter, and I have every intention of making a home. They are going to come at us with everything they've got. We're getting off this island. <laughs>